A good evening and a warm welcome to all witches, weirdos, goblins and ghouls you are listening to the London Horror Society podcast. This is the podcast where we chat to people working across the genre, whether they be established or emerging, in front of or behind the camera, from first assistant director to final girl. Without any further ado, grab yourself a glass of Chianti, sit back, relax, enjoy. A warm welcome back to our witches, weirdos, goblins and ghouls. Hope you're all doing well. Also want to say a huge thank you to everyone who tuned in to episode zero since its release last week. We're really happy to finally have the podcast out there and we're even happier to be sharing episode one. Our guests this week are the writing, producing, directing duo behind Switchblade Cinema, Alex Austin and Keir Seawitt. If those names sound familiar, and they should, it will probably be because you've seen their excellent short films, Wretch, do not resuscitate and their latest sucker which has been absolutely killing it at film festivals around the world since it came out last year you can find links to their work below in the show notes if you'd like to check it out and i highly recommend that you do but in the meantime here's mine and chris's chat with alex and keir of switchblade cinema alex are you a witch, weirdo, goblin, or a ghoul? 100% a weirdo. Nice. Down. I mean, I am also witchy, but I feel like weirdo is more accurate. So, a... given the choice, weirdo. Great. Yeah, yeah. So, one thing I found is that everybody tends to do a bit of a combination. They may be like two-thirds one, a third the other, or <laughs> three-quarters. That's good. Keir, how about yourself? I mean, I'm, I'm really shocked that Alex is a, a weirdo. Um, I thought she was 100% going to say she was a witch. But um, <laughs> so clearly shows that, uh, you know, after knowing someone for 10 years, you still don't truly know them. But um, no, I guess, I guess that's why we're together, because I'm also a weirdo. So it's, uh, it's we're oh. two weirdos together. <laughs> you are the weirdos, sense. mister. That does make sense. Yeah. Weirdos United. So, yeah, with that, how did you guys end up? Because, um... sorry, let me start that again. So you guys do a lot of work together, um, you know, writing, producing, directing. Um, how is it that you both came to work together? So, well, the reason we met in the first place was through a music video. And at the time I was, I should say, solely uh, an actor. Um, and we worked on that together and ended up dating soon after. And then Kia took me to the dark side of filmmaking. Um he convinced me that that would be a good thing to do, and here we are. <laughs> it was basically um, our first project together, properly, of me like filmmaking with him was a forty-eight-hour film project actually in Edinburgh, mm. um, which we ended up winning. Actually, we won. Oh, best nice! Film. It was amazing. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of like the really. That's actually very succinct for me. I hope you're proud of me, Keir. I actually think like the, uh, the the thing I distinctly remember about that is we'd been together a year at that point, and I remember sort of saying to you, "This is either going to make us or break us up." So you know, <laughs> we're still together. So clearly, it uh, it, it worked out. Uh, I mean, I think that the same could be said by any producing partners uh, at the beginning of a project, whether they are together or not. Um, <laughs> but it's great, it's great that you guys are still together ten years later. Um, so. 
Kia, how did you get into horror and what led you into horror filmmaking? It's kind of like one of those, uh, you know, um, rose tinted kind of stories of, you know, my father was really into all sorts of um, these movies from the 50s. And he was a big uh, John Wayne fan. So I used to watch all of these Westerns and stuff with him. But he also was really into um, old like sci-fi movies. So he used to watch like things like uh, Earth versus the Flying Saucers and all sorts of things like 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 a lot of stuff that I can't even remember the titles of because they all kind of blend into one in my head. Yeah. But we'd also end up watching um, old horror movies. And a lot of them were just like, really like trashy things and you know we used to watch rewatch a lot of episodes of the twilight zone yeah um so i really grew up with a kind of like idea of horror and the kind of like classical black and white kind of way mm-hmm. uh kind of like goofy monsters and suits and things like that um and then i think it was uh when i was like 13 or 14 i had like a bunch of friends over for halloween and my dad just kind of um rented a whole bunch of films for us and i think he just literally went into the horror section and just like anything he vaguely recognized he just kind of like threw in and so i just had this pile of vhs's um and the two that i really distinctly remember from that is um well one was uh, nightmare on elm street 3 the dream warriors which i, I hadn't even seen nightmare on elm street one i just i knew mm-hmm. i vaguely knew who freddy krueger was but um i remember watching that and being really super into it but then uh the one that was really kind of blew my mind was uh john carpenter's the thing Mm -hmm. um which just kind of like i watched with no real knowledge of what it was or anything about it i just remember seeing the vhs cover and i remembered i knew kind of who john carpenter was because uh, i grew up in partly in new mexico and at the time he filmed vampires in new mexico so it was uh it was kind of like a thing that there was this local there was that john carpenter was this guy who was like who had shot this film like near where i lived and then just kind of i recognized his fa- his name on all of these vhs covers and then something about the cover of the thing with um the kind of the guy in the snowsuit with the lights coming out of mm-hmm. the hood that just always like stuck with me and so kind of like yeah like the the thing is kind of my rosetta stone as i'm sure it is for sure. a lot of people and then just nice. kind of like over time just got kept just getting more and more into it it's crazy and kind of actually really comforting that, you know, of all the origin stories, you know, when you ask people about how they got into horror, they seem to always fall into that kind of pattern of either, Jim, I think with your one, um, it was watching videos around a sleepover and, uh-huh. you know, getting yelled at by somebody's parents. And for mine, it was uh, it was certainly so- finding my dad's VHS collection and watching, I think mine was another Carpenter film, mine was The Fog, and that was my first uh, my first gateway into there along with other things it's brilliant how things kind of just work out the same for so many people it really is you know a, a habit you learn you know it's kind of that uh, that being scared at an early age is chasing that kind of spooked out dragon throughout well, your kind of career as a horror fan i think how about you alex how did you uh, how did you get into it um yeah i guess mine is less like that um i'm not really like there's no distinctive origin i suppose okay you're bucking my trend okay fine yeah sorry sorry to be that person i'm like i'm different um but yeah i guess what i always go back to is anime because i genuinely didn't think i was into horror for such a long time even though i was the most morbid child i knew um and i'd always be telling like creepy stories and i was like really fascinated by death but no didn't like horror because at the time i just associated horror films with 
slashes um and i think it also came a lot from the fact that i grew up in switzerland so we only got mainstream movies um which wasn't very helpful so anime was kind of, uh, yeah anime was kind of my jam and there was this particular one called elfenlied which are not a lot of people who watch um anime will be familiar with um and it's quite bloody and gory and yet and i was really into it i was really ensnared by it and couldn't keep my head and mind off of it and yet i didn't think i was into horror so uh it, it took me a really long time i think to really realize what the spectrum of horror is as well wow. like not everything is paranormal ghosts and not everything yeah. like horror infuses so many things and let's face it so many thrillers in mm -hmm. the 90s anyway in the 90s and two, 2000s were essentially horror adjacent or just flat out horror but they were like oh well we don't want to use that term because it might turn people off mm -hmm. basically so it wasn't really until i started dating kia that i really realized that i was actually into it and i think we both revere horror so much that that's why it took us some time actually to end up making horror films whereas then when we made our first horror short properly with wretch we were like oh everything just makes sense now why haven't we been doing this the whole time um, yeah. but i think it takes there's so much to do with timing and all that kind of stuff and we did make a lot of comedy shorts actually um but i think that also prepared us really well for what we're doing now so it all works out in the end but well, it, we just took the long way around <laughs> yeah that's really interesting like I, I was saying to chris a few weeks ago like i was in a similar thing i didn't really realize that i was ac actually into horror uh, i just kind of thought it was the same as everything else but um yeah i'm glad i'm not alone uh wow. but um do, do you think like working on uh, comedy um put you guys in good stead for working on on horror films because people say that there there's a lot of parallels in like um you know the the timing of like a, a kill or or a death or something like that is similar to the timing of a joke in that you've kind of got like a something that establishes it like building up tension and then you've kind of got the um end of the gag like either the the death or the uh or the punchline like do you do you think that there there are any parallels there between your work in comedy and your work in horror one well i i would say that i i think one of the other things that people really often miss with comedy is that they miss that really great comedy is you know visual as well as audio mm -hmm. so it's like there's a really great um, Every Frame of Painting video uh, that's all about why the comedy filmmaking of Edgar Wright is so sophisticated because it's using all elements of filmmaking mm -hmm. to sell jokes, not just people saying funny lines. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true with horror as well. Horror is about how you utilize the camera, how you utilize editing, how you utilize the sound, all of those things. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a full spectrum uh. of sort of cinema whereas you know i mean not to be rude but like a lot of like dramas like you can shoot them competently and if you've got good actors and a good script then it'll work it's like you know it doesn't need to necessarily be the most um, sophisticated or creative forms of filmmaking but horror to me the best horror is really really sells what's so singular and impressive about filmmaking as an art form yeah yeah that, that's it horror seems to have that perfect balance of being um a, a medium where you can like you said Kier, really um pull out some great set pieces but with the camera 
um, with with your art, with your actors. But also at the same time, on the on the flip side of that, it allows you to explore, you know, subjects or or themes that you wouldn't be able to do in any other genre, right? I, I think um, I think that's what sort of works so well with people, particularly. I mean, for me, in particular, you know, I love that balance where you can produce, you know, really competently brilliant made art pieces in the horror genre but can you know tackle all subjects it's a it's a win-win win-win-win really well i always kind of feel like if you can do horror well then you can do most other genres well it's yeah. like i i feel like it's a real intense proving ground for kind of like all the elements of film yeah so it's it's and it's it's really interesting to see when horror filmmakers then move into other genres and do other things because you know it's because i i think there is this inherent thing that you can't kind of get out of your system if you're a horror filmmaker there's something that's just kind of if you do it well if you if you truly love it then it, it translates into what you see people doing in other genres yeah i hadn't looked at it that way before but that's really that's really eye-opening um Alex, what's your journey been like from in front of the camera to behind the camera? Um, were there any kind of skills or... I would say when it comes to directing actors, I don't think there's a right way to do anything. But I do think there is a prevalence of treating actors like props oh. that I'm not super keen on. Mm -hmm. And... I think depending on how much experience the actor has had in front of a camera as well, there are just certain things that you can pick up on if you've been in that situation before. Sure. Just to make someone feel more comfortable ultimately as a person, which then actually unlocks their ability to inhabit the character more, I would say. Yeah. So I think that's something I bring into it like I mean if you're an empathetic person anyway that obviously helps and you'll have some of that anyway but I think there are a lot of people who say that if you do do an acting course as a director that can be massively beneficial for a lot of reasons yeah because it's so easy to just say I'll just do the thing or do it better sure. or do it more aggressive or whatever it's like if it can come from more of an informed place yeah um, and i think where i read what i read somewhere i think it was an interview with daniel radcliffe for some reason i don't know what was going on there but he said something about some of the best directors he's worked with ask the right questions in the sense that they let their actors get to the place they want them to go by letting them answer the questions and get to that place themselves which i'm still working on anyway that's a really yeah i don't know <laughs> roundabout way of answering the question but no, no, I think I think that's really interesting. Like, just to follow up on that, like having been on both sides of the coin, you know, if you were to speak to a director who hasn't had that acting experience, is there anything that you would kind of say to look out for, or anything that they should maybe pick up on when it comes to kind of reading an actor, how to, how to kind of deal with an actor or give direction? I mean, this is going to sound very like diplomatic, but. It is true that every actor is also very different. So there isn't a catch-all answer, I guess. Yeah. But it's an interesting question. I think in general, I would just... 
Yeah, and I, I think the main thing to keep in mind is that there's an awful lot of pressure there, no matter how seasoned anyone is, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And yes, their job is to learn the lines and know the lines, but once you get in front of the camera and you're doing an action that you've only just blocked out or what mm. have you, depending on how much rehearsal time you've had, it's an awful lot to do. And you know that you're, you know, the, t- the time, the clock is ticking. So I think... Yeah, again, just I also don't agree with like molly coddling too much either. Sure. You know, ultimately we're all there to do a job, right? Um But I do think comfort is good and checking in with people is good. Of course, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So with that, is like is there a specific kind of actor that you look for? Obviously, you know, it's gonna be different depending on on the role. So I mean, um like what's what's your casting process like? Are you kind of looking for personality first or someone that you know that you can get along with? Or how do you guys go about finding your actors? Yeah, no, that's a really interesting one. And I I do think that is different. Well, I would say for us, because obviously everyone has their unique experience. um, Because I come from an acting background, I know a lot of actors. So I'm really blessed in that way that Kira and I have a pretty deep roster of people that we already know. Um, and so we will usually consult our little database first if we're, um, going out for a project and we've worked with a lot of amazing people. Um, but I actually got asked this question at a panel recently, um, as to, you know, where I look for my actors, why an actor? And I said, you know, I would love to say that we go on Mandy because we have gone on Mandy before Uh if we're looking for someone else um but most of the time that's actually more for crew than cast because sure we know so many people already that it's rare that we don't know someone that would already be appropriate for the role mm-hmm. i think that is changing now though that we're kind of going into the feature film sphere of things mm-hmm. um because you can bring people in the room but you can't necessarily go well it has to be this person or else because you've got other people to make happy right so we're starting to see those kind of political sides of things as well sure and um, you can always get your mates in the door and that's the important thing but what i said to the person at the panel in the end was honestly i think if you are someone starting out and you didn't say go to a drama school where you're connected with a film course or what have you one thing i would definitely recommend is to attend film festivals whether it's virtual or in person and then contact people whose films you like uh and write to them and say what it was you liked about their film don't just say oh i'm an actor and i i want work yeah um because don't we all (laughs) Um, yeah right like (laughs) what is it about that film that interests you and then you can go from there um and you know that's how you find the indie filmmakers who are of the same level where they're kind of like starting out and you're also more likely to get juicier parts ultimately because sure mm. you can get a one-line part in a tv show and you build up from there it can take a long time yeah and i do think producers often lack well i should say executive producers can lack um imagination so unless they see you do the thing that they're looking for they might not cast you so sure i think i think as much as here and i always try and apply imagination when we're looking at people we don't know already um there is definitely an element of you can everyone can put themselves out there 
big I mean, way. I, w- I would say, like, I think to if there is one overriding thing um, that we that we do look for, um, and this is a somewhat abstract notion, but I think it's it's an important one is 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 commitment to the project. It's like you need people who are willing to really just give themselves over because you know the vast majority of things we do are very physically and emotionally demanding. You know, they are, it's a lot of like makeup and a lot of like physical acting. So it's something you can't enter into if your guiding light is just to be on screen, look cool or look pretty or, you know, it's, it's, you got to kind of give yourself over to, what the project is and i think like the best people we've worked with are people who really just you know really are are just 100 percent ready to commit to everything we're doing so and i that takes a lot of trust and you have to appreciate the trust that people are willing to put into it into you so it's like that's the relationships you have to find and forge is the people who are committed to the project and who will trust you and then you also have to repay them by trying to look after them and make sure they're you know, they're okay through that process. Yeah, I think it's one of those things, isn't it, where uh, there's so many challenges in, in indie filmmaking. And uh, and I think finding cast members is, is probably one of the hardest things because, you know, you'll have those sort of dream cast members that you'd want to sort of bring in. And, um, you know, you obviously can't afford those or, you, you know, you'd be very lucky if you could afford those. So you have to you have to sort of temper your expectations. Right. And I think if uh, I, I think what you guys have done so well and um, I applaud you for this is, is by managing to find people within your within your circle, because a instantly, you know, you've got the, the two hardest things. Right. You've got rapport and you've got trust. And I think, you know, that that's so um, that's such a sort of a big thing or big hurdle to, to overcome when it comes to casting, because if you are hiring off Mandy, you know, your odds are stacked against you, right? I mean, you're, you're sort of speaking to someone who, you know, kind of maybe sort of sells you a yarn for a living, right? So they're going to kind of say anything to sort of get a job. So you've got to kind of A, C through that. B, they're not probably or maybe not sort of getting paid to their normal day rate, you know, if they're, if, uh, if, if the budget sort of doesn't stretch that far. So you're kind of up against it from that. So then you've obviously got to make the decision to hire someone, bring them in with, you know, perhaps even not too long before you actually go to shoot and risk it all on you know that decision and it's it's such a minefield and you know by the time you obviously start to realize that uh, someone might not be working out for you it's it's likely in the indie film world to be a little bit too late isn't it so i think your advice to find people within your circle first or at least be able to you know pull references from people that might have worked with people before is is really sage advice yeah no i would i would agree with that and i mean the thing is like I guess that's why I brought up the panel thing because I know that that can sound limiting, I suppose. And not everyone's going to know as many, say in our case, mm. they're not going to know as many uh, people um, or have necessarily a range. So people know people know people. And yeah, um, we've definitely, you know, done outreach. Duchess, for instance, is a good example because we needed a very specific casting for that. So we did... Um, do more outreach but that was definitely uh friends of friends at that yeah. point um, well you'd even i'd even say too i mean um kill your lover is that the yeah. lead of that is not someone we knew um particular like i she was a uh page uh gilmore she was a model that i had worked with before who was also an actress and you know we just 
um, we were just looking for people to audition. So, you know, because you want to create a sort of like pool of people that you can look at and you don't necessarily um, always, everyone, not everyone you audition, you necessarily go, this is definitely going to be the person. It's just to see a variety of people. And so, mm. you know, we were really sort of like pleasantly surprised, you know, because we, it, it wasn't necessarily like I'd gone to her thinking she's definitely going to be the lead of the film. Um, and yeah, so that's a case of us just trying someone out and then actually it, it working out. So it, it does, um, it's not necessarily that we just talk to our friends and everybody, all of our friends still had to audition for Kill Your Lover. So it's, it's a, it kind of, it, it can kind of vary a little bit. I think that's a really good example, actually, because as much as we do often find people within our circle, um, it doesn't mean that we will just cast someone because they're our friend either. Mm. Uh, because ultimately casting is king. Like, you need someone sure. who's going to be able to read, especially in a short film by comparison, especially when you don't have as much time to establish someone. It is just good to get people who do read as something pretty quickly, unless you have the budget to, you know, uh, adjust what you need, like whether that be costume or look. It's really difficult to get people to read as something very quickly unless they're already naturally that. Sure. Yeah. There's that's... so many peculiarities to casting as well. Like even when we cast um, Sucker, um, we at one point were really debating about whether the two actresses could read as sisters. And so the question was whether we could cast the two people we wanted to because whether they would actually look enough like sisters. Um, but one of the big things was that when we looked at Annie, like one of like, you know, the things with her is that she loves horror. And, you know, I remember us having a conversation and I, I've got to credit myself with saying this because I think it was me who said this, uh, was, um, <laughs> it, it was, you know, the reality is that she's going to be walking around for two days with this thing that weighs what, like, you know, five pounds. Yeah. Um, all around her neck and like eating lunch with it you know sort of just having to you know sort of like exist in this world where she's just covered in gunk and has this thing on her and you well, need someone not to mention contorting and twisting around and yeah and the reality is you need someone who when it comes to four in the afternoon five in the afternoon or like when you're almost when you were you there and you need a couple of extra hours tacked on to the end of the day to get it done you need someone who's enthusiastic and is still going to be kind of like oh yeah i'm really enjoying this process rather than i really sick of all of this stuff get it off me now <laughs> yeah and i imagine those people are um not easy to come by <laughs> no and i mean you know I, I i won't i won't say the name um but there was a friend of ours who had a film where an actress just ripped off her makeup rather than do uh any more takes and obviously that makeup took ages to apply and so it was oh, wow. kind of like they were just stuck with what they got at that point yeah oh boy we'll get just that name off there <laughs> uh, speaking of sucker um congratulations on it you guys have had an incredible run uh with this film it's played i think bright fest dead northern a billion others um you know it's popping up all over the place globally you know what what's the last like year or so been like for you guys with the reception that sucker has had absolutely mental uh mostly from the perspective of we were simultaneously managing the festival run of Sucker and going to festivals, attending as much as we could, as well as being in pre-production for the feature film, yeah. um, which we shot in two blocks. So it was 
honestly, the la- the second half of last year is just um, it was amazing, but it was also a bit of a blur at points because we were just like, whoa, where did all this come from? Because the first half of the year was a lot quieter by comparison. <laughs> so like the reception's been really great. Um, I'm, I've been particularly happy that like the performances have been so well received as well as the sound design. Um, and of course the special effects makeup, um, because a lot of the film was practical and I do think people respond really well to that, especially in horror. We love it as well. Um, I, I always like to say, uh, CGI augmentation rather than, uh, sure. necessarily trying to rely on whole cloth creature uh-huh. creation, um, above all else if possible. But then there was certain things in Sucker that just had to be done whole cloth as well. So that was a really, really great experience. Um, and in many ways prepared us for the feature. So it all kind of went hand in hand. And what was so great about going to the festivals and seeing people again, hooray, hooray for 2022 in that regard. <laughs> um, it was just, yeah, meeting people, but also being there, knowing what our next project was going to be. And like just making connections through that has just been a really positive experience and we i think here has said this to me before anyway so i'm pretty sure we agree on this uh don't want to speak for you um but when we did our first film our first horror short wretch that did a similar run actually we were really fortunate and um it went down really well um but we didn't travel as much and we didn't necessarily um get us involved in the community and i think what's been so wonderful is just really putting ourselves out there but also being embraced by the horror community uh in a bigger way and just really becoming part of it has been like just fantastic and we're just excited for the road ahead yeah yeah i I think um i think one of the real benefits of of the horror community i mean look as everyone will will attest to, you know, I I will happily lord and sing the praises of the the UK horror community till the cows come home. They're amazing. Um, But I think as producers, right, I think one of the hardest things to do when making any film is to predict market reaction and your audience reaction, right? I mean, if if you're, you know, making a a sort of a rom-com or a comedy or a drama, you know, there's you know, so many predictions that you can make about how the film might be received or who your audience might actually be. And you can, you know, guess, right? But with the horror community, if you're making a horror film, as you've said, Alex, you can go and essentially kind of sit with these people, talk to them about your film, talk to them about what they love. There seems to be this you know, huge camaraderie around everybody. And you can almost have in-depth conversations with your and this sounds really uh, maybe trite and cold but with your target audience right you can almost kind of pick their brains one-on-one about what they kind of what an individual might actually want to see in features and for me you know as a as a you know an organizer of a, a network and community of people it's great to obviously be able to speak to people making films but with my producer hat on as well it's amazing to actually kind of you know talk to people about concepts you know pick people's brains and i think horror is probably along with perhaps sci-fi maybe the only actual genre of film where you can actually kind of have that audience interaction. Well, and I do think it's also really fascinating on a community basis too, because you get such a wide variety of people with such a a wide variety of Mm. opinions and ways that they engage with horror. So it's like, if, you know, you're um, taking sucker around, there's the people who 
they'll really engage with say like the sister's relationship and you know what's going on between this between them emotionally but then there's the people who just like it's just oh i really like the i really like the the big leech it looks really cool Mm. you know and it's kind of like and you can have like you know it's 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 the thing that eternally fascinates me where you can you can get people who are very into horror as a a high-minded kind of um genre of ideas or you get the people who genuinely will sit there and try and explain to you how um you know how you know the hellraiser sequels aren't that bad and that really (laughs) you know actually their favorite one is hellraiser 5 you know and it it you know it fascinates because i i can't get through the hellraiser sequels and i consider myself a (laughs) horror fan but it's it's they you know you get that variety of people and it's it's the thing that has been really great about suckers you feel like you know it feels like we've been able to appeal to the wide variety of people the people who want something a little bit more kind of um emotional and sort of like grounded but then also like the people who just want like you know weird effects and crazy shit to happen i think that's kind of like that's been what's really fun is is so when it came to kill your lover we were like we know that we have people who are going to be super into this yeah I think like that's the interesting thing about horror, particularly with regards to sucker. Um, talking about it now is actually just jogging my memory. Um, a few months back, Alex and I were actually talking about sucker on the Discord, and I, I don't know if, if you remember Alex, but I kind of said, "Oh, is it about this?" Because right. it made me think of this and my personal experience with this uh, with this particular thing. And I think you said something along the lines of like, "No, it's not actually about that, but that's actually kind kind of interesting." But um, but yeah, it's it's one of those things where Sucker is a film in and of itself, but it's going to be a different film to pretty much everybody who watches it because everybody's going to have had different, um, you know, life experiences and stuff, and it's going to kind of touch them in different ways. And I think it's a really well, um, incredible thing to be able to do in a film that's what seven or eight minutes long. Yeah, it's it's eight minutes precisely because I, I get really funny about love there being extra seconds. <laughs> so like, eight minutes exactly. Um, but no, I completely agree, and I do remember that conversation. Um, Kira and I talk about this a lot, actually. Uh, even with something like Wretch, which you can watch on Alter for free, by the way, um, if if anyone is so inclined. Um, Show notes below. But with Sucker, we say that, Sucker and Wretch, we say that it's almost like a Rorschach test of whoever's watching the film. Um, because there are certain things that are left up to you to decide as to what they're about i mean the film's actually dedicated to kira and i's um good friend marcus um who sadly passed away last year from cancer and he he read the script and he actually helped me improve it um by making it more meaty than it was before and um i always wanted to dedicate it to him also because when he read the script he said how much the sister relationship affected him but also that he said oh you you know the sucker to me represents my cancer um and that that really hit him in a big way and like to have someone say that they in their own way say that they felt seen by the film and that it's some form of catharsis almost because even when I wrote the film, it was um, a bit of an exorcism, personally, creatively, for me. And so when people share those stories with you, it's 
really important and like mm. quite touching. And I've had a lot of people say very different things um, of like what it made them think of. Well, I think um, I said to you was um, with me when I first read your initial script was uh, um, made me think of addiction because I see the, everything through the prism of addiction. I, so it's like it, 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 it does have that thing of like that a, a certain kind of um, abstractness that can you can kind of fill with, you know, your own readings. Yeah, and I, I think that it is, yeah, I, I agree. And I think I know what I was thinking of when I wrote it, but I'm not. I'm not here to be prescriptive about you have to see it the way I see it sure. either. Um, and I think that's, there's a lot of horror that's like that. Yeah. And I think it, the craft of it is often underestimated by, you know, whatever awards, fill in the blank, um, <laughs> fill in yeah. the institution, um, because there's a lot of craft in, in, of in this stuff. And I think comedy is the same as it's very easy to dismiss just because there's entertaining elements to it doesn't mean there's yeah. not something going on oh underneath the surface mm. well it's yeah. funny I actually remember getting into a really um uh kind of verbally violent arguments with a, a friend of mine because um one of my top five horror movies of all time is Candyman I love I love Candyman the original Candyman obviously um and um I uh and I always because I think it has this very potent allegorical you know message and you know i think it's like a perfectly crafted movie that ends exactly you know in a perfect way and they never should have made any sequels to it because it's it's a perfect standalone movie um but my friend's reading of it was like oh yeah but maybe it was all just in her head and i was like no <laughs> no that doesn't make any sense that's stupid no stop that you know and it's like i'm like uh, because it's like to me it's like if it's all in our head then it makes everything i'm saying that then everything i find interesting about the movie irrelevant so it's like it's that thing of um you know you also like i think you you do have to always be aware too that like no matter even if you have your very prescribed reading of how like your film works you know there's always going to be people who are going to interpret in a way that feels more interesting to them so you you've got to just kind of let them have it i think a lot of the time yeah yeah, and it's not all in her head. Like I can't. I no, can't no, exactly. No, that's, that's, <laughs> I mean, I'm aside from Candyman, which things. very clearly it is not in all in her head. <laughs> I had a, I had a moment's panic of yeah. is it though? No, but that, that <laughs> no. but no. Uh, yeah, it's not. It's not. I mean, it's it's really um, what I, I love about your guys' output is um, if you sort of look at the the sort of the three genre short films that you know you've, you've last done, so uh, Sucker, Isolation, and um, and Wretch is that it's the hallmark of a great production direction team is that there's you, you know you watch it and you know it's one of your films and yeah, there's hallmarks of it that sort of carry through it and i think that's always such a great thing to have but i think as well what i've sort of seen in your in your work as you've gone along is that you try and push the boundaries i guess in each film in terms of the production values there always seems to be something I mean, like in Sucker, I think uh, you called to attention to this, the sound design. I think the sound design was absolutely stellar and, and you know, the best out of the three that I've seen. Is, is that something that you guys, I mean, this might be a, a silly question because it's probably yes. Otherwise, why are we doing this? You know, is that something you guys look to do in each one of your films? And, and if so, you know, what's your sort of thought process like in, you know, deciding where you can kind of go bigger and better in, in future projects? To be honest, especially with Sucker, um, I was like, I just want to get back in there. I want to 
because I directed a crime short beforehand um, called True Value. And this was like my next proper short, as I like to call it, where I was like putting lots of time and effort into it. And I wrote it honestly thinking that this was a simple script. Mm -hmm. And you fool. I, I, I fooled <laughs> myself. <laughs> um, so it was only like once I started planning it and I was already committed to the idea of making it that I was like, Oh, oh, okay. This is uh, okay. This is a thing, and this is also a thing. And let me tell you, making an inanimate object effectively sound and feel like an actual living creature is quite difficult, and I do not recommend it. There's a reason why people stick fangs and makeup on actual human beings. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a good reason for that. Um, so heed my warning. <laughs> but at the same time, it was a really good test and i i don't know if i specifically went out of my way to make it harder for myself that might just be a special special skill of mine <laughs> um <laughs> but thankfully it didn't end up being too big to i didn't bite off more than um we could chew essentially and we faced each challenge as it came along and i think the biggest challenges were the special effects um mm. sound to an extent uh, but we'd had a lot of experience with that at that point, so I knew what we could do, what we could and couldn't do, um, and the VFX as well. The visual effects in particular, that was the most amount of visual effects we've ever done. Um, but it was planned in a way where the practical could meet the visual effects. Yeah. Yeah. And we weren't too reliant on doing anything too crazy with practical effects. So... You know, if you watch it a couple times, you can see exactly what it is that I'm doing because I don't show the baby sucker exploding out of her back. Spoilers. Um, <laughs> um, I don't show that, but we do it visually because, you know, if I had all the budget in the world, of course I would do that. Sure. But I think you can still get that visceral feeling yeah. from the expression on the actress's face combined with the intercutting of the imagery. Um of course. So, it, yeah, I, did, I didn't go out of my way to make it hard for myself, but it ended up being a good trial run for what we then ended up yeah. climbing ahead for Kill Your Lover. Well, I think I think one of the things that we've we've really learned to over the last um, couple of things we've done from, especially like uh, you know we made a, a drama called Portrait, and then also through um, uh, our sort of short that um, I don't know whether either of you have seen but it's on alter came out on alter earlier uh, last year called do not resuscitate i love do not resuscitate uh, it's so good and and what we kind of learned a lot is rather than and sucker was part of this as well is that i think we had a real kind of like oh we just need to shoot everything as fast as possible and just get it done and then i think we we've really kind of gotten more into the mindset of that film you construct a film over time rather mm -hmm. than everything just has to be done in the immediate so one of the funny things about sucker is anytime you see close-ups of the, the the sucker's skin or it moving or you know the bit where it descends it's all that's just that's not actually shot during the main shoot that shot in our living room and there was about three hours of uh of just like literally me just on my own actually because alex was exhausted by this point and i was just like getting random shots of the sucker so i just had it out on a table and was just like grab it and just flick it to see what it looked like on camera when it would do that and i was watching uh lethal weapon two and three while doing this 
um, and just kind of hung out for three hours, just moving it around and twitching it and doing stuff like that. And, you know, out of that three hours, we maybe had three usable shots that we used, but it's like, <laughs> sure. I think like that's the thing with special effects and with, um, you know, the ways that you learn to push thing is, is that you give yourself room to experiment. And I think those sort of lessons really did put us in good stead, you know, with the feature, because with the feature, we literally had a day that was just nothing of us just, but us just walking around and taking shots down corridors or getting a close up of a kettle or getting a close up of a, of like, um, uh, you know, the door opening or closing or things like mm. that. It's like you, you start to realize that a film is more about how you construct it rather than just what you're literally shooting on the day. Yeah. I bet that shoot day was welcome after uh, what must've been like long shoot days and stuff like that. Oh, well, we had this amazing th where literally there was a point where Oscar, the cinematographer, um, uh, we we were just getting a slow track down the corridor, and he said, oh, "I could really do just like an extra twenty minutes." I said, "Oscar, you can take an hour if you want. You can have as much time. As Spend all your time lighting it. I don't care." Just like he took uh, there's there's a point where I think he took like about forty minutes just to light a shot of a kettle boiling. It was a uh, but it was it nice. was it was a very sort of relaxing day. Yeah, I mean, you got to take those days when you can. Do you know what I mean? Because they don't come around often. So yeah. Go for it, Oscar. Take your time, pal. Well, I think that's it, too, is that was a day where we literally, it was just us, Oscar, and um, the gaffer, and that was it. Like, we didn't have a sound. We didn't have any actors, sound, anything. It was just to just literally get cutaway shots. Amazing. And so much of that stuff becomes so important later on because, you know, it's all the stuff that on the day never seems that important, but then yeah. later on, you know, will save you. Yeah, yeah, 100%. So... Can you can you give us a bit of a rundown on Kill Your Lover, um, how it came to be, what the shoot was like? Well, because I understand you did two blocks, didn't you? Yes, yeah. right. Um, I would say, so the way we like to put it is um, basically November, at the end of November in 2021 was when the first draft of the script was finished. Is that right, Keir? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's an interesting one because I think we were really inspired by, we went to Fright Fest with Isolation. And I think it just really inspired us to kind of go, we just need to make a feature. And I even remember like Paul McAvoy just saying straight up to us, just come back with a feature. Um, so yeah. I guess I guess we, we, we did. But I think we spent a couple of uh, months really trying to figure out, you know, the holy grail of kind of indie films which is coming up with a concept where two people in a flat is interesting for 90 yeah. minutes um and you end up with a lot of like dull mumblecore movies that way a lot of the time <laughs> but it was like you know it it kind of started off as a concept of a of one person trapped in a flat with a zombie because i always thought you know people like in movies people are always like killing zombies like left and right but yeah. you know a zombie is still a a person and it's like that thing of like, I'm mean like, it would feel like it would be hard to kill one zombie. So I was like the idea of like a movie that's just about trying to kill one zombie. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'd then it that. kind of morphed from that into, you know, because we, you know, we started to think, oh, well, it would be more, as we were talking about it, we started to go, well, it'd be more interesting if there was some kind of emotional connection between uh, her and the zombie. And then you're kind of like, oh, well, it's probably her husband or boyfriend. And then, oh, well, maybe he comes back and he's infected and then he trans starts transforming. And then 
once he becomes a zombie, he just started to become less interesting because he couldn't really talk. He, then he's just a zombie. It's just not as interesting. So we, so then it, it, it morphed into him kind of changing into a monster. And then it kind of became, oh, how could this be a metaphor for their crumbling relationship? So it kind of like, so, I mean, the film is essentially about uh, two people in a dysfunctional relationship um, where um, uh, Dakota, who's um, the woman in the relationship, she wants to break it off. But the more she tries to break up with him, uh, with her boyfriend, Axel, the more he slowly starts becoming a toxic creature that burns people when he touches them and starts growing all these black veins all over his body. Um, and it's kind of, yeah, and the film is kind of about how when you are in that kind of toxic relationship, the relationship itself becomes a monster that poisons both of you. Um, and so, yeah, so, sorry, I've, I've realized I've massively sidetracked from the Alex's point, but uh, so we, we basically, we, we had a first draft as of the end of November. Yeah, and it we, doesn't matter. What, what I was just trying to get at is, even though it, from conception of the script as of November 2021 to finishing production, shooting, at the end of November 2022, that's technically a year. Yeah. But I would say that this feature film has been essentially 10 years in the making, which is how long Kira and I have known each other. Amazing. Yeah, and I, and I, and I think kind of like, it's, it's kind of um, crazy too, because I think I've said this to Alex, like the more, you know, we look at this project, the more we can say that, there's semblance of of things that we've been talking about for 10 years in this script. So the first draft may have been done in at the end of November, but it's kind of like it contains so many elements of things that we've been talking about wanting to make and doing and incorporating into things for, you know, 10 years. This is obviously something, as you said, that it's interesting to hear that, you know, the 10 years in the making, you've obviously made a, a series of, of shorts in that time. I mean, with, with a feature always at the forefront of your mind as something you guys have, have wanted to do, what was the step up like for you from the short game to the feature game? Was there, I mean, look, everyone expects it to be more difficult, but, you know, was there anything that surprised you? I mean, yeah, I mean, I would say like the big thing that surprised me is that it's nothing like making a long short. You think, <laughs> you think, cause you think I uh, make a short, it's, I made a short that was, you know, it's normally it's two to three days or, you know, even maybe four, but it's, you know, you know, I can do that, but all I need to do is like add 10, you know, 12 more days onto that, but it's just not the same thing. You know, it's like, there's so many different pressures from, suddenly you're you're trying to think about much more complicated longer through lines you know the overall commitment of everybody involved is so much more the organization um both you know in terms of just uh you know uh logistics but also financial is mm. just so much more complicated and so it's it's just a different it's just a complete different kettle of fish you also you know it's also like you can shoot a short over the weekend or, you know, a long weekend, you know, if you're making a feature, you're committing weeks of your life to something. And, you know, people have jobs, people have, you know, other commitments, you know, especially if you're not able to, you know, pay people full rates and stuff like that. It's a lot to ask from people. So it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an entirely different experience. 
Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, it's uh, it is such a step up, and I think it's uh, you know often something that's that sort of perhaps uh, you know I wouldn't say not thought about or missed by people. I mean, I think it's just you know sometimes it is unappreciated how how tough that step up can be. I mean, we have obviously a lot of people within the NHS and and people obviously hopefully listening to this podcast that are looking to make that step up. I mean, if there was perhaps, and I'm, I'm going to put you both on the spot here, one piece of advice doesn't have to be the piece of advice but if there was one piece of advice that you could pass on to people to remember or something they must do when making the step up what would it be is it okay to take a moment absolutely to <laughs> throw you under that bus yes yeah. <laughs> i think there's Sorry, probably on. several things um but here let me know if you're if you're ready and i, I mean i i would say like I would say that I think that there's a lot of people who kind of have um, what they make what I what I would classify as the that counts film. It's a thing that's technically between 80 and 90 minutes. It has some actors talking to them to each other and it has like a few scares in it, but you don't feel like there's any passion in it. You feel like somebody made a film to make a film. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that is always a road to, you know, making something pointless. Um, I think, I think, and I, I speak about this because, you know, I mean, there was a producer who was for ages trying to, who was interested in working with us on a feature. And I wrote this script that, you know, just honestly really sucked. And it was just a case of me just trying to be like, we want to make a film. I just want to make a feature. So this is like something that I think this guy will like. And then he didn't even like it, but it was just like that thing of, I, I kind of am very thankful that I never made that feature. Cause I don't think, mm. I would have had any passion for it. I don't think I would have cared, but yeah. I felt like I cared about kill your lover. And, you know, when you're, cause I mean, the reality of like making something like this is it's a bit like building a ship while you're sailing it. Yeah. It's like, you know, we just had to have faith that we would find locations, that we'd find money to do certain things, that we would find the personnel we need, that we'd find the actors. I mean, I, you know, when we, when we uh, had the first draft in November and we first started talking to actors, you know, we had no money in place. We didn't know whether we were going to be able to make it or not, but we just kind of put a date in the diary and said, okay, this is when we're shooting and we're going to make that happen. Um, and I think that, you know, the only thing that will get you to that spot and of actually rolling cameras on that day is to say that you actually care passionately about the thing that you're making. And it's not just a film to make a film mm. because otherwise you'll always be able to delay it. If it's, yeah, if it's just sure. something for the sake of it, you'll always be able to delay it. Or even if you do make it, I just, I, I think, I think when you don't have passion for things, it, it comes through. Yeah, it like, definitely does. And how can you expect your audience to, to feel good about something? If you know, there's not the passion from you, I think, uh, you know, it has to be driven from, from you as the creators so yeah absolutely completely agree it's an awful long time to be stuck with something you don't like so <laughs> <laughs> that's a really good point yeah yeah a really really long time <laughs> well yeah you don't want to get six months in and go sucks i'm not having a good time yeah yeah i, <laughs> I mean, mean i think you get to that point at any with any project there's always that <laughs> yeah. point yeah. where you hit that but yeah as long as you're as long as you're fair to go through it yeah i i think that's it isn't it it's like um I think this is a Mark Manson quote, um, but what well, it's based on other stuff, but suffering is inevitable, but you have to make sure that the suffering is worth it. Mm. So you are the only person who's in control really of what project you decide to 
uh, industrial suffering in, I suppose. Um, but you know, there's there's good and bad to everything. So struggle is what you learn through ultimately, isn't it? So mm -hmm. uh, if it was all just as glamorous as the final products look and what probably made us all get into the industry in the first place, <laughs> um, you know, we all thought, oh yeah, it'll just be a, it'll just be a laugh. Yeah. And it can be, um, but there are so many things you need to put in place in yeah. order for that to happen, I suppose. Um, to answer your question about advice moving in from shorts into features, I think ultimately it's really difficult to know when to make the jump. And I think it's important to acknowledge that it's really difficult to get to that place because especially like what, what Kira and I benefited from was having our partnership and knowing that no matter what we had each other's backs. So maybe that's my advice is really make sure that you have at least one person that's on the journey with you mm. the whole way through because yes, you can do it on your own. Absolutely. But I think it makes it that much tougher. Mm. Yeah. No, that's it can really be a lonely place, can't it? Well, it's just then otherwise people start calling you an auteur and then everyone's like, God, they're obviously a wanker if they're being called an auteur. <laughs> um, <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be difficult to work with. Um, but no, that's uh, that's really good advice, Alex. Um, so in, in terms of next steps for Kill Your Lover, um, I understand that you guys have got, you know, I saw on Instagram that you've recently just uh, got an assembly cut done. So you're well, obviously in post. How is post going? Aside Kid, from the assembly wanna, cut, you want right? to take that one? How are you doing? <laughs> um, I mean, I've I've not gone crazy yet. I mean, I I think it was, uh, you know, I I think I think the, the the very honest answer is I don't think any filmmaker ever looks at their assembly cut and doesn't want to to vomit because I think it's that thing of like, <laughs> I think it's it's that thing of you um you have this thing in your mind and conception. And I think Alex is, Alex always says this uh, too. I mean, I, I know you probably, you, you took it from somewhere else, but it's, it's, you always reinforce this to me. Is All of my the, best um, quotes are stolen. Is, um, you know, there's the film you make in pre-production, there's the film you make in production, and there's the film you make in post-production. And, right. you know, the thing, the best thing I can say about it is that I'm incredibly proud of what we've achieved. And it's that thing of me kind of going like, I just, I, I look at it and I go like, I want, I, I, I can't wait to see the final version of this. <laughs> it's like, uh, it's like, it's, it's the, it's the, the, the exhaustion of going, okay, now I have to sit and refine this. And then Alex will come in and she'll do her refinement on it and uh, throw out and, and explain to me why all of my decisions are wrong. And then I'll, <laughs> I'll protest them and I'll argue and then I'll look at them and go, okay, actually she's right about that. Um, and yeah, so it's like it's this kind of like very much in your. I, I'm sounding very rambling, but I suppose the best way I can put it is I'm in the weeds. Sure. Uh, right. With it at the moment, but I'm incredibly yeah proud of what we've done, and I think it's going to be really kick ass, and I think it's going to really shock some people. That's the thing that I would like to say more than I'm 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 anticipating that when we show it, you know, for the first time in a public place, I think there's going to be some some monocles popping off and, a, and, a, and some, some people where, who are where are you planning on showing it in london um, of course at, at a fancy dinner party that's where <laughs> you know but uh, but no i think darling the so, 
some some metaphorical monocles um sure. but i think i think i think there will be an audience that will absolutely love it but i i, well, I definitely think there's going to be some scandalized people in the audience how utterly scurrilous <laughs> um so you guys are also in the process of just raising up some uh funds as well is that correct yeah i mean we have an ongoing crowdfunding campaign on greenlet.com um uh -huh. that you know basically we made this film for no money so any money is very useful basically because um we've got some post-production costs definitely vfx wise mm -hmm. and um also sound wise but also marketing is a big thing so yeah. you know basically any help is welcome um sure. it, but basically like kira and i are looking at it and we're going like yeah this has the potential to slap i hope it slaps nice. um and uh that's what you want. But we've got what's good is that we've got a lot of things lined up to make it really good. Um, it's just about getting it across that fish finishing line. Fishing line? The fishing, fishing line. line. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I think we've we've been trying to keep a pretty strict schedule with it as well. We've been trying to say we need to hit this point by this point, this point, because otherwise, you know, we know too many people who languish for years trying to finish something. So yeah. we know we need we're determined to get it done. Yeah. So with, with that schedule-wise, are we, we going to be seeing this at uh, Fright Fest 2023, do you think? Maybe. Well, that, that, would, that, would, that would be a, certainly be a, a hope of ours. You know? <laughs> um, our hope is very much to have it ready by that point for it, to enable it to get in. To have um, a chance. To have a shot, yes. Really grateful to Alex and Keir for being so generous with their time and talking us through how they got started, where they're currently at, and what plans they have for their feature debut, Kill Your Lover. I found talking to them and learning more about their approach to filmmaking to be pretty eye-opening, particularly with how their feature story changed and developed over time to become something that sounds pretty fresh, as well as how they work with actors and their crew. Making short films and low-budget features can be grueling. Not just for the producing team, but for everyone involved. I think my main takeaway from our conversation is to be conscious of what you're asking of your team, to make sure that they're on board with it and that you're meeting them in the middle, both in terms of your expectations and making sure that the environment you create is safe and productive. You can find links to their short films and social channels below, as well as a link to their greenlit page where they're raising funds to get Kill Your Lover over the line. If you're at any film festivals in 2023, Keep your eyes peeled for it. We will be. That'll do it for this week. Be good, you beautiful witches, weirdos, goblins, and ghouls. We'll be back next Friday with filmmaker Nick Taylor, who also happens to be the host of my favorite horror podcast, The Nick Taylor Horror Show. Until then, stay weird, stay spooky, keep up the good work.